Welcome into Nacho's Glen House Stories. I've been waiting to do this one for a minute. There aren't many people, people, who I, I watch on social media and I'm really envious of their plants where I go, what is that plant? I don't, what is that plant? It doesn't happen to me that much, kids. I'll give myself a bit of a, a merit badge for that. But my guest for this week's story is one of those people that does what we should all be doing with gardening, which is challenge what we know, push and experiment and have fun with gardening in that kind of way. And that's Jimmy Blake from Huntingbrook Gardens in Ireland. Jimmy, I want to get to this point, this question first. How did you start? Uh, what did you grow up with plants? Did you grow up with gardening? What what was the beginning for you? I did, Steve. Yeah, from the very start, um, you know, I was gardening with my mom from when I was a little kid. I was only talking to her at the weekend about this, and um, she said she remembers right back to when I was really, really young, and um, so I was always interested. She had just raised five other children, and uh, I came along twelve years later, so she had more time to be in the garden. So I was with her all the time. So so you grew up in a, in a gardening home. What kind of garden was it? What was it a, a, an average size garden, big garden? What was sort of the, the tone of it? Um, it was, it was a big garden. It was a big garden. It was, um, there was a lot of rhododendrons, huge rhododendrons, a lot of trees, um, uh, all sorts of herbaceous rockeries, um, glasshouse, tunnel as it was yeah so there was yeah it was a big it was a big um a big garden it was it was uh it was it was it was great to grow up in because you know you're surrounded by these really ancient rhododendrons huge rhododendrons of used playing as kids which is one of those plants that when especially here in the states or in, probably over in europe as well when people buy them as small container plants no one ever experiences a rhododendron forest until you see yeah. a rhododendron forest and you see the yeah. that many of these species want to become these very like leggy trees. So you grow up there, but then at, at some point you clearly become complete plants person. What is, is there another moment after growing up in that environment that really triggers you towards the place that you find yourself at now? I suppose, you know, I, I trained in the botanic gardens in Dublin. Um, so that's where I, I did three years there. So that was, I, I was immersed in plants there and that was really where it all started. Um, and I did the amenity horticulture course. So it was, uh, it was, it was, it was all about plants. It was all about gardening and I worked in the different areas of the botanic gardens and went on placements and so yeah that's where that's where it really got going and is that one of your your first hands-on i would imagine with some of like the more rare plant material that that you really love today and because it's not much of what i think for for many people that end up where you're at it, these aren't plants that you can just always walk in to an average garden center and find so was that sort of the beginning of that for you sort of thinking outside the box to use that phrase yeah, it was really. And it was, I suppose I don't have that thing in my head where I say I can't grow something because I live, I live here <laughs> and the weather isn't warm enough or the weather isn't cold enough or I just, if I, if I like a plant, I want, I'm going to try and grow it. 
So I suppose seeing such a wide variety of plants in the botanic gardens and even working in the big curvilinear ranges that I wanted to try those exotic plants as well. And yeah, yeah. So, and when you, how do you start hunting, bro? How, how does that happen? Because one thing I, I find interesting is anybody that's done this in a more recent timeline, we have such a, a, especially in Europe, a history of old gardens that have, are historic, right? Fantastic still, but historic gardens that have been there for, for decades, if not centuries, where you started something at a very large scale relatively recently. What sort of led you to make that decision? I suppose I had I had worked for uh, in a garden in Dublin for ten years, and um, it was definitely time for me to go out on my own. And and do you know when you're such a plant collector, um, you can be quite you you're restricted a bit because you, you 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 can't plant your special plants because you know you're going to be moving on. So I had this chance of getting there. There was twenty acres on the side of the farm. Um, I had a chance of of moving out of the city. It's not far out of the city at all, um, and building a house here and starting my own uh, business, and that's that's what I did. I wanted to be my own boss. I was fed up of of uh, having to answer to people, and definitely it was time to to start to go on a new adventure. Did and, you did, uh, did you find at one point in you saying that that because I think this is one thing that that has existed i think it's better now and i'd be curious of your opinion on this sometimes the horticulture world has been a little rigid in its thinking about plants and and what's popular and then we have like the nursery horticulture world which is sometimes just driven by like commerce what looks good in a container on a bench at a garden center was some of that just a creative freedom for you that you know you didn't have those limitations anymore of either one of those two worlds yeah, I mean, you know, Huntingbrook is, is is much about just my home and my passion and my obsession with plants. Um, I mean, you know, the collecting plant side of it isn't, I don't consider it a business. It's my hobby. It's my life. And, um, and for me, it's about growing new plants. Um, the exciting new plants. You know, when I look at a catalogue or I look, you know, or I look going to a garden and I'm looking for the word new. I go down through a seed list. I mightn't have ever had the seed list before, but I'm looking for the word new written on the seed list. Um so that, you know, I'm getting new and exciting plants and I'm tossing out, throwing out plants that I've just got bored with growing. So it for me it's I have to keep the excitement in what I'm doing. I don't want to be maintaining hunting brook from year to year. Um, you know, I want to be ma- doing new projects. I want to be removing big areas, trying new plants, trying new ways of growing them. Um, so I really have to feel the fun of it, fun in it as much as possible. Isn't that such an underrated thing, Jimmy? That the world of plants, and I find this sort of interesting. And maybe this is me living here in the states, where I think it's probably still worse, but I'd be curious of your opinion there too, that in a world of plants that is nearly infinite, just infinite, we're still discovering people. I I tell you guys this all the time. Just recently, we had a guest on, Jimmy, and we were talking about this, that we're still discovering plants in 2020. 
we're introducing new varieties in the wild seeds are being collected from new species that that newness is forever forever literally and that there's an anticipation of that an excitement and and a fun that's attached to that that i sometimes think people don't find in their own garden yeah i mean you know not everyone gets that but you know for me it it the world of plants gets bigger and bigger you know it's you know i i started buying seeds from a guy in greece last year and you know i go on to his seed catalog and i know so little of it and that's that's the exciting thing for me that i can actually it's it's like i'm a beginner nearly again when i go onto someone's list like that and you look at all of these Mediterranean plants that probably don't really want to grow where I'm growing, going to grow them. But um, that's the excitement for me. It really is. And uh, yeah, I suppose not everyone is, is, is wired that way. But certainly, I think it's, it's a fun way to garden. Now, I have to ask you this because I get this sometimes too. And I think sometimes people confuse this. Maybe there's a group of plants in a particular year. I know for you, a lot of the flowering ginger species were something this year that you were excited about. And then people will see you with that plant. And then they'll immediately be like, well, you're into that now. That's like your thing of the moment, right? Where sometimes I think they're missing the fact that no, 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 no. That's just what I'm experimenting with this year or I'm revisiting this year. It's not like I've just become obsessive with just this particular group of plants. They're part of this world of plants that I'm just exploring right now. Do you feel that way sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, I, it changes so often. I mean, well, I just have to think, try and think what I'm even into at the moment. Yeah, I'm into those those Roscoe's at the moment. Those Eucomas are really good at the moment. Uh, how do you have such success with eucomus? I, I would have thought that would be a challenging plant for you. Are you starting them I, in a greenhouse early to get them going? I, I dig them up and I bring them in. I, I put them in the greenhouse or the tunnel for the for the winter. And um, yeah, I don't do anything special with them. I literally just pot them up, um, keep them dry-ish through the winter, and then they just start growing again in spring. But I find if I leave them out, they tend not to flower as well. They don't, they, you know. And there's a lot of new ones. I actually put, put, I was in Wisley Gardens in England and they had a trial on Eucomus. And that's quite often where an obsession starts with me when I see a trial. You know, I look at 50 different Eucomus and then I'm able to pick out the two best of them and um, make loads of notes and then start studying up and um, a lot, a lot of what I grow is is from seed as well. You know, um, I do a lot of propagation, so I just love that challenge of lear- learning about a group of plants that I, I don't know or haven't really grown before. Um, I'm probably be bored with them in two years' time. Um, and then the Uraliaceae, that's that's a big thing for me. All that family of plants, um, even today to very naughty shopping uh a box came from france with two uh brasiopsis in mm. it so, oh my god it, it's the most exciting thing when i get a box like that 
arriving in the post. Isn't that, and, and, and again, I think that's, you know, I, I think for people that are new to gardening or people that maybe feel it's very rigid sometimes, the experimentation, there's very few things in life that I can think of that I have, I'm going to say something. I want to see if you agree with this also, Jimmy. I don't know if there's a plant that I've bought that I experimented with that then died and failed that I've ever felt that bad about. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Exactly. The, 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 there's something to the experimentation of it yeah. that is really important. And you said something in a, you have a video course series that you've created, both of them, which, which look outstanding. And in the introduction to the, the one from spring, you said the word brave and have people become a little bit more brave in what they grow. What does that mean mean to you? Um, like I see a lot of people and they're, they're each year, they're not happy with, with their garden or they're not happy with their an area in their garden. And they just don't make decisions. They don't make a decision that like get rid of a plant that you're bored with or get rid of a plant that every year it falls over or every year I have to water it a lot. Um, and it's it's just making those decisions. And I always say to students, the minute you wonder if a plant is right, it's wrong. You know, you're walking by a plant and you're kind of wondering if it's right. Well, then it's wrong. And then it's time to get rid of it or it's time to give it to somebody or whatever. Um, so definitely, I think, I think, you know, there's borders here and there may be a few years old and I've been putting plants in and out each year, but it's, it's just not working. So it's time to actually be really brave and get rid of everything in the border. I not I know not everybody's going to do that, but they can do it at some level in their garden and stop hanging on to plants that are they're bored with and that you don't like, maybe. Isn't it interesting how people are sometimes afraid to do that? There's this yeah. interesting because plants are these living things. There is this attachment of emotion to it somehow where I, I feel like people that are in the nursery trade for sure, plants people, I think they would look at what we would do sometimes, Jimmy. I'll, I'll be doing an Instagram live in the morning and I'm just popping heads off of dahlias like crazy, right? I'm just popping a head of flowers here. I'm popping a head off here. I'm just showing it, right? And people are like, Oh, why, what are you, what are you doing? What do you, you know? And yeah. I'm like, I'm pretty ruthless people with plants. Yeah. Like, like I, I'm not going to suffer a plant that I don't think is great. I know if I do this, the plant's just fine. I haven't gotten a complaint from any of them yeah. yet for doing it. Do you think there's sort of a, a transition there between the two groups of people sometimes that for some reason just hasn't communicated as much to like new or, or average gardeners? Yeah, it's so true. Like I watch sometimes people's faces when I'm, you know, let's say I'm lifting the canopy in a in a shrub to let you, you see through it and you just chop, 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 chop. And some people just cannot cope with that. It's, it's um, it scares them. But uh, it definitely excites me. Yeah. Well, and, and isn't that part of, I mean, that's what garden gardening is. It, yeah. it, it's our involvement. Otherwise, we're just doing forestation projects, right? <laughs> we, we, we do play a role in crafting our, our space 
to what we see it. So when you start at Huntingbrook, is do you have like a did you have a master plan for it? Did you just allow your your collections that you were developing to dictate where it went? Yeah, I didn't have a master plan. Um, I mean, I built a wooden house in the middle of the garden and it was quite a nice shape to the land that kind of naturally made borders. Um, but it's it's evolved. Like, I mean, apart from the trees, the trees that I planted, most of the plants that I would have started with 18 years ago are gone now. Uh, and I have just evolved through different phases of of different types of design and it's definitely looser now and it's much more of a tapestry and it's much wilder and um so it's definitely definitely changed a lot over the years um i do like it's not that i don't plan as well i do like i'm i'm in the middle of planning next summer already and you know i'm i'm making notes about you know what's what I'm going to do, but let's say one of the big borders, I'm I'm making notes about what's coming out, what's what's staying, what do we need more of, um, you know, what annuals I'm going to use, what date is. So I do I do a lot of planning, all right, but I don't draw big master plans on paper. Do you find because I, I think we're I'm going through this exact same thing you're going through at the moment of planning for next year and doing this major remodel here that do you ever have a moment where you wish there was a master plan or do you enjoy doing it in that way where sort of where almost the plants take you in the direction that you end up at? Yeah, yeah, I I, I prefer that. I mean, I suppose with the new gardens that we put in la- this spring, um, you know, they they were planned out, but it was... I had been working on the idea of the plants for the border, especially the sand garden for uh, since since last summer. Um, and that's where I'm literally starting to brainstorm what type of plant would I like to use? What style of plant I'd like to use? What type of foliage? You know, your, right down to your texture. Sa- yeah. Your sand garden. I mean, I, I've seen it quite a few times now. What was the soil? at hunting brook like what was the native soil like the native soil is kind of like a heavy clay it's acid soil um, and it's good it's quite good it's quite good soil um it is quite good yeah that area where the sand garden believe it or not it was quite damp so it probably sounded a bit crazy that i wanted to put kind of a dry garden in a damp area but um we raised up the beds and used a really free draining soil with a lot of grit in it and then five inches of sand, at least five inches of sand on top of that soil. So it then allowed me to grow a completely different lot of pl- different range of plants that that than I could have grown in that area. Um a little bit of I don't know, Californian feel about it. I don't know. It's 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 been the best of fun doing that part of the garden. Well, and that and I, really brings you to where you want to be also. And, and that's something when, when you have someone to ask you this, because I have this question a lot and I wonder how you cope with it. So people ask me, because I, I grow so many of them about dahlias and yeah. they'll say, which one should I grow? And really the question should begin, what does your soil look like? 
for yeah. many people here in the States, and I'm sure it's similar in Ireland as well, if you have really heavy soil that holds water, and in particular if you're in a cooler climate, that is not exactly a Dahlia's best friend. Yeah. And yet they still want to, right? And sometimes you're, I mean, you obviously with your sand garden, I mean, that's that's a large scale example of it. But it's a, a good example of if you want to grow this kind of palette of plants, you do put effort into the soil more than thinking about the plant. You know, it's sort of the square peg round yeah. hole kind of philosophy sometimes. Do you find that questions you get from people sometimes too, like the soil talk is sometimes underappreciated still, despite the fact that it really is going to dictate so much of what you can grow successfully. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that the, the m money that was spent on that garden was mostly on the soil. Like I got the absolute best soil and I wasn't, I wouldn't have, um, I wouldn't have scrimped on getting that the best, best soil. You know, I wanted to grow agaves. I wanted to grow aeoniums. I wanted to grow cactus. I mean, these borders are heading into, a, you know, a, a valley, a, a wooded valley. So I had to, I had to do this. Um, and I, that is the key, absolute key to having healthy plants that, that are, you know, you're, you're providing what they need. Well, and that's such, a, you know, for, forever here in Tennessee in particular, before we started recording, we were, I was, I was complaining to you about our weather that, you know, we have this very long growing season with really hot temperatures, but yet. If I complain to you about that, you have a very opposite experience with weather. You have a very cold, wet spring that eventually recedes into a short summer some years. And have you found that that's what you're also trialing sometimes with plants when you experiment? You know, will that plant adapt to your area? And then there are some plants that love your weather, just like there would be plants here that love my weather. And do you lean into species of plants that are from other parts of the world that are similar to yours sometimes to experiment with that? Or have you always sort of tried to go counter against it just to test some of that? No, I got, do you know what? I go such a wide variety of plants. You know, I'm really, really into woodland plants. So I'm into plants, you know, that are really happy here as well. You know, the, you know, all the, Podophyllums, epimediums, the polygonatum, all that fa family of plants, you know, they're a really, really big passion of mine. Um, and also then into trees, into all the radiaceae, into foliage plants. But then the real, the, the real fun, I suppose, is, is like growing those incredible foliage plants like the Brasiopsis, the Oreopanics, the, the Scheffleras, um, and then why not try and grow plants from really arid places? And that's what I'm trying to grow doing in the sand garden. Um, I like, I don't know, I like just adding in that fun and quirkiness to it as well, where people don't really expect they're leaving the main gardens here. They're heading into the big wooded valley, but they have to walk through, you know, a succulent and cactus garden first, which is uh, which is pretty fantastic. That's what it is, Jimmy. It's it fantastic. Is, you know, Steve, they're not, I mean, I I think the cactus are really big. They're, they're not big at all. I mean, 
I remember giving a lecture in um, in San Francisco and we went up to see the big cactus garden outside San Francisco. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I was so embarrassed. Like I was showing photos of my, the cactus were only about a foot high. Mine were, you go up, you, you go into this big cactus garden and it's these massive cactuses. But I mean, you know, it's all, it, I enjoy doing it anyway. No, I, I think, I think it is important for people. This is one of the things, kids, for you listening. It's so important that people like Jimmy are in the plants world because we need to be continually pushing what people are exposed to and educating people. Because quite frankly, especially here in the United States, as everyone who listens to the podcast knows, I talk about constantly, we've not done a good job educating. We have really dumbed down gardening to a point where we've taken a lot of the wonderment and what makes it exciting away from plants. And we need to push these boundaries of what people expect when they turn a corner in a garden in Ireland to suddenly be like, wait a second. I didn't, what? There needs to be that moment where people question a little bit of what they know, because I want to ask you this in this topic. I'm going to go to a place here that I'm going to say it, Jimmy. So maybe you don't have to. Here yeah. in the States, I, I I think we have what I would call um, hobbyist gardeners. And sometimes those people believe themselves to maybe be a little bit more knowledgeable than they are. And they say some things very emphatically as if there are rules. Mm. And then they they have interactions with people that are maybe newer or maybe not more experienced than themselves. And I'm afraid sometimes those rules, which sometimes aren't even true, they're not even real. They're just like, you know, almost a anecdote kind of information just sort of spreads badly. Yeah. And then we're stuck with it. <laughs> and then people yeah. like you and I have to be like, no, 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 no. That's not so true. Okay. I don't know who told you that, but it's not true. I refer to them as crazy Uncle Larry type rules that just aren't even <laughs> true. Do you, do you come across that in your position? Yeah, there is, there is a bit as well. There is, um, yeah, and I suppose that's what I'm been trying to do here. My main thing is is education. So, um, so yeah, I I mean that's 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 what I've been doing for eighteen years is trying to educate people here on on the type of planting I do and the plants that I grow. So, you you also so, mentioned epimediums. So whenever anybody mentions epimediums, Jimmy, I immediately have to jump in and say something, right? Give me your take on epimediums, right? You love them. I love them. I think most people that have seen them grown well and different cultivars and species of it love them. But still, it is a struggle in in the, the industry of plant side of it as far as sales and commerce. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting when I bring classes down and show them the Epimedium collection, most people, to be quite honest, aren't that interested. And I'm so excited looking at the Epimediums. Um, they really aren't. They really aren't. But I do, it's funny, like I go over to the Great Dixter plant fair, well, I can't this year, but in in the UK and a lot of the specialist nurseries have epimediums there in spring. It's amazing the the variety of epimediums that are out there. 
But, you know, they're small little flowers that a lot of people aren't that terribly interested in. Um, I just absolutely love them. And they do, they, they grow quite well here as well. How many plants do you have? How many epimediums? Uh, there's about, I don't know, maybe, I don't know. There, at some stage, there was about 80 anyway. No big deal. Uh, no big deal. Just 70 no. or 80. How many do you have? <laughs> well, I've got a lot. Funny you say that. As we're recording today, I've got a box of like 17 new cultivars coming today. Oh. Um, my God. In, in the United States, uh, Karen Perkins, who's been a guest recently on the podcast, is the. Oh, I have to listen to that one. Yeah, I yeah, heard and, about it. And yeah. she's the only specialty nursery in the United States even doing epimediums, the only one. Yeah. And her ex-husband, Daryl Probst, is responsible. Ah, uh, yeah. Right, yeah. as you, I'm sure a name you know, is mm-hmm. is responsible for the the breeding and introduction on a lot of them. And mm-hmm. in, in my mind, like there's that cultivar Black Sea that yeah. you know turns this plum brownish tan color in the winter months and then goes back to green in the spring. Yeah. that's enough to grow it in itself people you had me at that i don't <laughs> the fact that then there's flowers that follow all of the rest of it kids i could just be like I, i'm buying this just to see that moment in the year yeah and, and, and it flowers so early as well it's a real early flower flowers so, in, in in it flowers in february here see okay so let me get your opinion on that so hellebores all right. Hellebores were something that I think in the 70s and early half of the 80s were, were still collector plants. They were in that world a little bit more. You had some seed strain, Helleborus orientalis and hybrida that were out there, mm-hmm. but they really didn't hit mainstream until maybe like the 90s started to creep in. What do you think separates those two things, epimedium from hellebore? Is it just the flower size? I mean, is it just that, the big flower shape, which is technically sepals, people, but anyways, um, of hellebore versus epimedium that the two sort of – I almost look at them in the same way, Jimmy, that like the two of them somehow were sort of at the same place and then one just raced ahead of the other in popularity. No, I know. I think it's just – I don't know. I, I like small little flowers that, that slow me down. And, you know, when I go down to the Epimedium collection, um, I just love to sit down with them. And, you know, for me, gardening is about what it does to my mind and keeps me calm because I'm, I can be quite an anxious person. And the likes of Epimediums, initially, you have to sit down with them and you have to look at them closely. And I love photographing them as well. So, I don't know. I just, I just adore them, and I love the leaves of epimediums. They're so much nicer than a hellebore leaf. Um, you know, I just, and even at the moment, we were dividing epimediums the other day, and the leaves on them are just so beautiful. Now, I, I also have a lot. I have an awful lot of hellebores as well. Well, I also like on some of the epimedium grandifoliums. Um, Domino comes to mind. Pink champagne. Yeah. Some of the ones that out are there more commercial production, even here in Tennessee this year. They rebloomed in the summer. Right. Yeah. 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 Which, which was just mind blowing. I, yeah. I, I expected them to just sort of, you know, fall into a, a bit of a summer dormancy kind of situation. And I would walk by them. And I mean, we, it was at the hottest time of the year, Jimmy, like the hottest, you know, it's a 103 degree heat index outside. And I walk by and here's this beautiful, delicate, ethereal flower 
floating in the air. Yeah. And, and I mean, that just was like, what? It almost, you know, from, from, from my own gardening mind, it's almost such a spring flower for me. Seeing it in the yeah. summer almost took me a second look and I had to actually reach out to some people like Karen and Daryl and ask them. I'm like, is this normal? Like, is this something that like I, I we can expect out of these cultivars? And they were both like, yeah, no, that is both those varieties because they were sister seedlings exhibited that. And I was blown away by that. Do you, do you have those moments with them where I think they're one of those plants? I think you nailed it. You have to slow down and spend time with them to notice these things. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And the likes of Epimedium domino has flowered since spring. It's still flowering now. And there's one that flowers nearly all year round here. Is it Membracium or Membrancium? I'm not sure how you say that, but it's a super one. But I think part of it with me is as well that I can go on to a website. There's a specialist Epimedium nursery in Belgium, and there might be oh way over 100 Epimediums on that list. Part of it, again, is me going back to the new and seeing Epimedium names I don't know. And it then I have to research them. Are they good plants? And then I start writing down a list of ones that I want to get. But it is that thing of getting the new plants. And there are so many new Epimediums out there. So walk me through that process you just said of you determine if you think they're going to be good plants. For you, how do you explore that? Do you look at species first? And then look at point of origin of that species. Do you re- do you refer to other people that you know? Like, how do you walk through sort of that initial shopping experience, right? That you and I and anyone else is in this world has, Jimmy. Where yeah. it's some of the most fun you have all year for free. First off, because you haven't bought a plant yet, you haven't spent any money yet. And the, but the process itself is exhilarating to to go through the, it. How do you walk through that those steps? A big part of the trail of getting a plant is that 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 part of just looking at it and maybe clicking on that you haven't fully bought it. So sometimes I actually get away with not buying things because I I get so excited when clicking, 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 clicking. And then maybe I can't find the credit card or something or I'm in bed and I and, uh but sometimes I get away with that that I've had enough of the trail of <laughs> of just clicking. Uh, anyway, what was I gonna say? What did you ask me? Oh <laughs> That how do you go through your shopping period with it, right? So do you do you find like the species and then look at like place of origin? Do you work through it from that perspective? Like how do you go about your research on it? I definitely, you know, foliage is a very important thing for me. Um, so definitely epimediums that have really good leaves um is very important. That stems and flowers are well above the foliage, that they're tall. So I'm not terribly interested in the really tiny little ones uh, that are going to kind of get lost in my woodland. Um, so I am looking for good, long flowering, good leaves, tallish stems. Um, and then I would go back this time of year generally. Well, I didn't visit a lot of gardens this year, but generally I visit an awful lot of gardens with bringing people on tours and all that sort of thing and plant fairs. And, and then I go back to my notes or my photos that I've saved on Instagram and Facebook and you know I'll make a whole list of epimediums from all those notes so that I'd have those notes to refer to when I'm on a website for epimediums or primulas or other things that I collect you know that I've had 
that I have those decent notes from where I've seen good plants in other gardens. You said primulas. I'm going to pick your brain for a second. <laughs> Heat tolerant primulas. Is there such a thing? Do you, do you know what? I don't really know because we, we rarely get above 20 degrees Celsius here. I know. I hate you guys every time I see it, Jimmy. <laughs> I would do anything to be over 20 just, 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 just for a few days. Some, some of the, mu- the musa that you're growing would be a little bit you know, taller and faster, and those cactus would be too sometimes. The musa would be so... And, and you know, that nearly makes you want to grow it more. I have about 50 up from seed now the other day. What got and, you in? What, where did that come from? What, was that another one? Like you, you clearly had some. And is it just all of a sudden you're just like, I want to, you know, show people and share people like this is something that can be done? Or- uh, no, it's just that, that, it just that kind of, oh, you shouldn't be able to grow bananas here. Well, why can't you grow bananas here? I'm going to make it happen. Um, like we had our first banana, that's unheard of in Ireland, nearly banana tree um, forming bananas. So that was really exciting. I only came across that by accident the other day when I saw it. And uh, I suppose I've done a lot of travel in tropical areas. You know, I would have been in Indonesia and um, uh, India. And, uh, you know, so I would have been immersed in those like banana plantations. And I thought, well, why can't I do it here? It could be a bit of fun. And it's then it's the trying to figure out how how can you make these plants grow even if you're not going to get much over 20 degrees celsius um so do you so, so you I've, lift I've, them so you lift them in the winter and you bring them I in into a the, greenhouse the one that's formed bananas at the moment i haven't brought in for a few years so i just wrap it in straw hmm. and otherwise like the big red ones come into the house you know for me is just you dig them up put them in a pot bring them into the house don't water them once through the whole winter um I have a beautiful one at, called Bengal Tiger. I would have got from Tony Avent in Plantalites. Yeah, yeah. Um, an amazing banana. But um, and, yeah, and, should... and you just bring it into the green. You bring it into a dark space when you bring the when you lift it and bring it inside. Um, they come into the classroom or they come into they're stuck somewhere in the house. Got it. Um, definitely the darker, like in the in the hallway, which is quite dark, was was quite good last year for them um but i found a nursery in france was it france oh i can't hopefully i'll have forgotten about it but i found a nursery the other night that has a huge range of banana plants um and i really really had to try and not buy them because it's not (laughs) i'm only gonna have to babysit the banana plants over the winter so um so so are you as amazed at as I am. And I think this is a part of it that makes it still exciting is you've been doing this now at Hunting at Honeybrook for almost 20 years, but you're still finding some of these specialty nurseries. Oh, it's amazing. And I think with, with Brexit coming in in the UK that we're not going to be able to buy our plants, a lot of plants from the UK anymore because we're not going to be able to bring plants into Ireland from the UK. So we have the whole of Europe, the the EU, um, and there's nurseries. There's, I'm finding new nurseries all the time, especially seed nurseries. And then Eastern Europe is starting to, um, you know, it's really coming up over there. I have plants arriving from Latvia, I think, tomorrow. And 
flocks. Not that I was ever into flocks, but even when I was writing my book, I, Noel Kingsbury, who wrote it with, he thought it was, he couldn't understand why I wouldn't like flocks. But then like two years later, I'm now collecting flocks from a nursery in Latvia. So it's kind of, so, so what made you change your mind from that period? Was it just the, 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 the wheels start turning? You start looking at them a little bit differently. You see yeah. some species that are a little different. Yeah, I just I just like some of the the deep colors in them that you know, um, and I love the scent of them as well. Really love the scent. Um, so yeah, I just thought I'd I you know just literally searching the internet for for flocks, and then I came across this nursery, and I just bought their deepest colors to see what they'd be like. And then I like you know, and I it's typical me like I'll try and grow maybe. 50, 60 different types of flocks, then choose the best and get rid of the rest. And that's, that's the important thing is, is editing, isn't it, when you're collecting? Well, and it's also, I think, important. I, I use the term revisiting a lot because there's, there's plants that we think we know. And yeah. then we, we quickly learn sometimes. We don't. <laughs> and, we, and, and they deserve a revisit. And do you, do you, is there anything else besides Phlox that recently has maybe been a plant like that or is Phlox the most recent one? Um, what else? Let me think. Let me think what else. I want to look at Monardas again. Mm. I did a bit of a trial on Monardas a few years ago and uh, it just flowered for so long here. Um, definitely. And I, you know, I'm going to really look at what days you grow. I went, I had stopped growing, I, I'd started growing mostly seed dahlias. Mm. I've got wonderful seed from different growers around the world and um, I've really enjoyed that. But, you know, I think I might be just getting a little bit bored of them now. Um, and I'm going to go back into growing more more colourful, more decorative dahlias maybe. So I'll be looking for advice from you, Steve. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I, I think it's one of the things, okay, so we're going to talk dahlias for a second, kids. So tell me about this, <laughs> what looks like a dahlia imperialis seedling that you have. How, how is this happening? I, I, I see you the other day <laughs> with it and you have a, a dahlia imperialis growing in an area where seeing it flower, Jimmy, would not be the first thing I would think of. How? So it's not, I tell you so I don't have Imperialis. I have um, a seedling that was in a batch of seedlings that I grew a few years ago. And it's this massive tall dahlia, similar to Imperialis, but it actually flowers from early summer right through to winter. Uh, it needs to be named. I'm useless at getting things named. So it's, um, it is a fantastic plant. And the other thing is that it's been left outside for the last few winters. No. Uh, yeah. So I don't know whether it's a cross between, I grow daily Australis, which mm. turns into massive big plants covered in pink flowers. But this one is just, it's got lovely bare stems as well. It's not that leafy. Um, it did blow over the other day, but I stuck, I, I staked it back up in a storm, but it's okay. Yeah, so so it's just that, I suppose that's been the fun of growing them from seed, because then you get this really incredibly tall plant that looks like imperialis but actually flowers all summer so it was from an a just a straight australis seed packet that you germinated and that was just one that happened to be just exceptionally strong and early flowering you see i have a i have 
single player days from different sources. Then a guy in New Zealand, um, Keith Hammond, uh, daily breeder there, and a few different people in the UK. A few, you know, my sister grows them as well. So it's a whole mix. Like, I mean, the bees are going around, and they're mm. you never know what you're going to get with them. Wait, you know? I mean, but that's that's an impressive plant. I mean, honestly, like for, for yeah, those of you, yeah. for those of you that don't know, we're going to slow down because Jimmy and I are going to start talking like this. And then you guys are going to be like, what are these two talking about? So <laughs> Dahlia imperialis, Dahlia australis, imperialis in particular is a considered tree form Dahlia from Latin America. So when many of you guys see in a garden setting, this relatively small four foot, five foot in some parts of the world, Dahlia that's growing. These are literally tree form plants that can reach nine feet, 10 feet, 11 feet tall. But because the season is so long or some of them natively see very few frost events, the plant gets to flower where for many parts of the world, the season, your frost comes too soon to see flower production. So you end up with this very big vegetative plant, but then it gets killed back by a frost event. And then you'd never see the flower. Now, honestly, I've seen people grow them just for like the structure of the plant mm -hmm. in the garden. And I've, I've, I've thought that's very cool as well, even not worrying about the flower, because sometimes people were a little too flower centric and focused. But what Jimmy has is something that is of that size, but it's flowering earlier in the year and it's somehow making it through his Irish winters, which in itself is, is crazy. Do you li typically lift? your any of your your dahlia seedlings or have you always just overwintered them and just given them some extra protection i do lift i do lift uh, yeah no i do lift them um and one of the reasons the days never go back in the same place that's that's another reason for lifting them but um i might ex might experiment leaving more of them out a lot of these big single flower davis these the, the, you know they're very hardy they have huge big tubers and um do you leave davis out I, I i have i have done it both ways you know i always tell people yeah. if you love that variety and you you want to make sure that you see it again lift if you're in a part of north america where you can get away with it you can leave them i've left many i i have one here that i have had in the ground i believe since 2011 and it has come back i've divided it a few times it's it, it, it's sort of this perpetual dahlia and we've had we did have a couple of relatively cold winters in there but i think is something that that you clearly experience a lot same thing i experience that a lot of what people have said when it comes to cold hardiness and some of these issues has just been anecdotal no one's ever actually done like true trials. No one's ever kept soil yeah. thermometers next to a, a clump of, of dahlia and been like, this is the soil temperature reading. We take it every day. We see if it makes it through winter or not. That hasn't happened. I mean, there are definitely cultivars that seem to just be weak tuber producers more mm. so than I think yeah. winter hardiness being the issue. I think there are some, uh, in particular, like the Karma series, which is widely available and yeah. primarily uh, was introduced for cut flower and pot production, is a bad tuber producer. 
<laughs> it's just uh, it, that's it, interesting yeah because i had a lot i had quite a few of the karma ones and i don't i don't know where they went i don't even have them now that's even it. though i did yeah that's it and, and i and it makes it's sort of like a lilium issue right that yeah. a lot uh christopher lloyd has in one of his older books this great rant that he goes on about lilium <laughs> and and it, it what he said then is still true to this day that a lot of the breeding and genetics for lilium was for cut flower so there was very little uh, effort put into having them be good perennials. And in fact, it was the opposite. As a, someone who sells bulb for cut flower production, you don't want them to have this really successful perennializing plant that they can divide and, and have as a reoccurring crop, right? You want them to buy new bulbs every year. <laughs> so, yeah, true, like the tulips, yeah. So you see it in Lilium sometimes where it's yeah. just they're not always that reliable as perennials. You know, there's some that, you know, are outside of that common, but a, a yeah. lot of the ones that people see in like a, a typical nursery garden environment, they can rarely make it sometimes even two years with them. What yeah. other plants yeah. do you have a collection of like that you like in the same way of epimedium that you have like a, a, a substantial amount of? Um, I'd have a lot of polygonatums, dysporums, dysperopsis, that sort of that family. Yeah. Um really really like them and then of course the the likes of Scheffler Scheffler's that the, the Aureliaceae I'm always building that building up on that pseudopanics mm. so we have we have quite a even though we give out we don't have very hot summers we can grow an enormous range of plants here now I'm actually a thousand feet here so it is it is a lot higher than but I'm not far from Dublin city centre and D Dublin they can grow anything they 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 want nearly there. Like they, you mean you're growing plants from from Australia, no problem. New Zealand, Chile, you know, South Africa. It's it's an it's an inter it's a good climate in a way to grow a, a really wide variety of plants. Um, so I do it. Yeah, no, sorry, I'm doing a lot with pseudopanics is kind of a signature plant here, mm. and. Um, I'm going to be doing a lot more with them over the next few years. Like, like when what, you what say I'm, you're going to do more with them, like what does that look like for you? Just adding to the collection, hybridizing yourself at all? What do you, no, how do you it's, see it? it? It's basically looking at a perennial border and how can I make that perennial border look a bit more quirky, add a bit of funkiness to it. So I'm weaving these kind of light canopied trees or shrubs through the perennial borders. Um, adding a bit of structure, adding a bit of madness. Um, and that's what I do to all the borders. What, what can be put in with these perennials that's going to really kind of add another layer of interest over the beds without blocking light coming into the beds. So that's what it, like one of the main borders over there has has a pseudopanics toatira, it's called. And it's just that that's through that bed. And I just think it look, it looks quirky. Um, it's given me a bit of structure. It's given me repetition. Um, and then pseudopanics, crassifolius. I just love the craziness of the structure of the leaves. Um, Do you ever get concerned? And we had this conversation on a podcast yesterday, Jimmy. And I've, I, I love a lot of Pete Aldoff's work. And I think a lot of what he's doing is, is really great. But do you feel like 
sometimes like a style like that will become popular. And then we see everything that looks like that. And then we lose that experimentation of interesting, you use the word quirky, plants that go into gardens. It almost becomes like we're repeating some of that same cycle of, okay, now we're going to use this like palette of like 30 plants only to create borders. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so true. I suppose, you know, I just don't want a small range of plants like your sedums, your echinacea, your, I want to, I want to be able to work with those sort of plants. Um, but what can, what can I make? How can I make it look very different looking? How can I add in structure through it that is interesting all year round, that it's not just late, late season plants as well. Um, I mean, I love Pete out of, out of designs and, uh, but I would love to get them and add in like loads of pseudopanics or loads of, I don't know. I just, I just, I just, I definitely feel it's time for woody plants to be used more in funkier ways and useful ways, even in small spaces, you know, there. I, I, I think you're completely right on that. It's interesting because I, I do feel, you know, it, it's interesting, right? There's these ebbs and flows of what is is popular of the moment, but it feels like woody plants in particular are have in this last 10 year, 15 year period almost sort of taking a backseat more so. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. So few people actually like, look at the woody plant collection here i mean i don't know I, I just love when somebody comes in and they ask me what that what that weird looking shrub is or and then i just latch onto them and I'm, we're off looking at woody plants i was saying i was doing an instagram live the other day and i just said god I said, do you want me to do um, a tour of like the unusual woody collection so i'm gonna do that soon um, well, and I think that's so. That's what makes Hunting Brook so exciting to me. Like I mentioned at the very beginning, Jimmy, it's like I, I think there's one of the, the the comments I make frequently that that really disappoints me. And, and and when people hear me say this, I think they they think I'm just being hyperbolic about it. But it it hurts my like emotional being the fact that there are many botanical gardens here in the United States that there's very little botanical about them and there's no plants people involved with them at all. And they've essentially just become glorified parks. Yeah. And that's not what makes plants fascinating. It's, it's not seeing something new. It's not seeing something that's new to you. You're never challenging any of that. Do you feel that's a big role in education of what you're doing? It is like I mean I know I'm kind of part of like these online courses that I'm putting together now at the moment that I'm that I've launched, and um, I'm putting a whole mixture of plants in it. But I'm really trying to push it with people that kind of open up their minds to to a different palette of plants or different ways to use plants. And um, do you know even with the online courses, I'm not calling them advanced courses. I want beginner people to look at these as well, and and maybe from the start when they're starting a new garden, they 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 see 
different exciting palette of plants out there and um, ways to use them not that i'm saying that i use them in amazing ways but i just you know hopefully i can introduce new plants to people that they may not have ever thought of growing i think that's completely correct i think one of the problems that we have is we we dumb it down so much at the beginning mm. that people yeah. don't have anywhere else to go they they don't have the foundation there they haven't been exposed you know it's similar to uh you know uh childhood education that you know everybody talks about how at young ages people are so receptive to information and knowledge well it's it's the same thing with plants if we're going to live in a paradigm of gardening and plants where we say the only plants that exist are like these 20 <laughs> that's it yeah that's it yeah I, I don't yeah. know how when you get someone who has been gardening for 20 years and those are the same plants yeah. they've been using, like I talked about with Crazy Uncle Larry, they start to think they know something and they do maybe in their experience, their own personal experience with those plants, but they really don't. Their worldview yeah. has been so narrow that it's almost difficult with them sometimes jimmy do you, do you run into that at all where it's like you have that person who you're you're trying to almost like reteach some of what they thought they knew and i mean for me i use the phrase a lot forget everything you thought you knew <laughs> i think mean, yeah. sometimes it's easier to start yeah. with people like that yeah yeah no definitely definitely i mean that's that's i suppose part of why i open the garden so that i can kind of really kind of you know try and educate people on 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 different sorts of plants that and you know we're in a world where we can we can get so much you know when with, with internet uh, mail order uh, shopping for plants i mean it's important you support your local plant nurseries and that but you know it is a great time we're in to be able to get such an incredible wide variety of plants and still, so many people are just stuck with this small palette of plants that uh, quite possibly they're bored with as well. Yes, very much. Yeah. And, and I think that's the thing, you you know, to, to pick on our, our mutual favorite of Epimedium there, that, you know, that's a plant until you grow it, you really don't know it. Because yeah. it, it's just one you, you have to grow, you have to see, you have to experience. And, you know, whatever you pay for that plant is nothing in comparison to the rest of your universe. I mean, you know, many people will go out to a bad dinner, Jimmy, and spend <laughs> far more money than you would on five or six really cool epimedian yeah. species or cultivars. So yeah. walk me through, you, you, you've put together, you had your spring course that you did, and now you have your high summer course that you're offering. Like walk me through like what you're covering in those courses for summer. Yeah, I suppose it's um we literally just launched the the high summer course today and it's it's four modules and people can dip in and out of it when they want once they sign up. And um I literally filmed June, July and August in the gardens. Um, you know, from the different looking at the different designs and the different borders, re enormous amount of different plants we're looking at, but also looking at kind of the different jobs, the way I propagate in sand, the way I do plant division, perennial division in summer, um, 
and then all the different ways that I kind of keep the show going and how I plan for next summer. And then we look at some groups of plants in detail, like geraniums, like Roscoe's. Um, and there's a whole mixture. I mean, it's, uh, but it, I am pushing, the, <laughs> pushing it with people to really kind of get into the nitty gritties of really exciting new plants and ways to grow them. Um, so it's it's basically it's following the whole progress of the garden through the summer. We still we're in we started filming um autumn today, so we spent the day filming today. So basically, what I'm going to do by next March, there'll be I think five online courses, and it'll be a year in Huntingbrook, and it'll be because I ran a course here called the Plants Persons course for years, and um, it basically will be that course online. So it just kind of gets it out there to people all over the world, I suppose. Which is fantastic. So now we're going to, as we wrap up here, we're going to tackle some super important topics. How has social media changed what you do at all? Instagram in general, has it changed what you do at all? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I mean, it's, it's huge now. I mean, you can, you know, launch that course today or we can just get it out there straight away to huge audience um same with the books like i launched the, or i published a book last autumn you know without social media it would have been it would have been just a whole different thing wouldn't it um i suppose and i i actually really enjoy doing social media i i don't particularly enjoy computer work but i enjoy doing social media because there's just so much here to share with people and um it's also brought a younger definitely a younger audience into the garden um, this summer when people couldn't travel and couldn't leave Ireland um, it, it's extraordinary the amount of people that have come to the garden through, through Instagram and Facebook and I think that's really good to see young pe- younger people coming to visit gardens I think that's exciting Oh, I, I couldn't agree with you more I, I, I often joke, Jimmy um, as much as I love people that wear knit sweaters when I go to talk at garden clubs um, it's, it's a bit much sometimes, right? Like we do need to, I get concerned because a lot of the associations and societies in relation to plants groups are, are older people and there has not been a generation behind them and we're losing a lot of plants here in the States. I'm not sure if it's the same over there for you. But we're yeah. we're losing a lot of plants, literally, like just you know gladioli or something like that. I'm seeing it happen over the last two three years. That just the people that were collecting them, hybridizing them, they're just yeah. dropping out of existence. Uh, there was a, a really sad story that I don't know if I've even shared on the podcast or not. But there was a a breeder who had been up in Maine. And he had been breeding gladioli his, for 40 years and he passed away just two or three years ago and the entire collection was lost because oh. the family didn't know that where he was at, you had to dig and lift them and store them and take care of the corms. And it's just gone, right? Literally gone, like destroyed by uh, the main winter. So do, have you seen some of that too? And, and, and I think that's the positive of social media that we are reaching different and younger people. Yeah, like I mean, even even last night I was I I have epimedium or not epimedium sorry epimedium on the brain aeoniums the succulents, and 
you know, I wanted to identify one. So I went on. There's, there's a there's a group for every plant nearly on every group of plants on, on Facebook now. So I went on to the Aeonium group and I was able to put on a picture of the Aeonium. And amazing to see the different people coming back from from all over the world um, saying what they thought the Epimedium was. And I think, you know, I think it's it's very hard to have you know, let's say the gladiolus, gladiolus group and they meet once a month or something. Whereas if there's a gladiolus group on Facebook, you have all the people all over the world. It's it's just the new way, isn't it? I hope that will will help groups of plants like the likes of the gladiolus um, survive. No, and, and what has been, because you're active, you're sharing the the prints on your shirts, which is fantastic, which I love. Your shirt collection nearly <laughs> rivals your your plant collection, Jimmy. What <laughs> what has been because because you were very entrenched in the world of, of plants, people. I, I guess from my vantage point, I'll put my opinion out here first and see what you feel. I, I get a little disappointed that there aren't more plants people sometimes being as vocal as maybe people like yourself and myself are on social media sometimes. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Like, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of plants people on on social media. Um, I suppose I just find, you know, I'm a member of so many different groups. I just find it that is that it is changing. Yeah, no, I definitely think it is, and that could be an American comment on my part, Jimmy. Honestly, because a lot of the people that I know that are plants people just aren't very active on platforms like Instagram. And I think there's, I I think there's a real value to that. I think there's one of the things I prefer on the Instagram platform as opposed to Facebook is I feel like first off, just Instagram lives are better than Facebook lives. That's just firstly, just easier and smoother. Yeah. Yeah. And I find the audience is also somehow, uh, it is younger. A. And it just feels more responsive. Do you, do you ever get some of that too? Yeah, I mean, I I I don't use Facebook Live at all, so I I do find, you know, sometimes I come on real early in the morning just to pop pop in, and and you get the gardeners early in the morning before they go out to work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. what's next for you? Right, Sand Garden. We've got that. Or, or is there any other thing? There, I know there's got to be because you have some space to do it. Is there uh, what else is brewing at the moment? Yeah, I suppose I want to really turn the dial up on color next year. And I we had a tricky summer with with weather and all the COVID stuff. And so I want to, you know, some of the main borders. I want to make them as absolutely flamboyant colors as i as i can make them so that's what i'm planning at the moment um i'm also working always working with the valley the valley is huge and it may not look like there's a, an overall design to it but there is design going on where i'm working with um on like scheffler is right through the valley big leaf magnolias funky conifers um, and I got more plants for it yesterday. So I'm working with that whole kind of exotic feel to uh, to the valley. So I'll definitely be working on that this winter. I'll be working on the meadows and um, trying to figure out what I'm going to do with the sand garden, getting the banana plantation ready. Um, 
I don't know. I, I this is probably the first year in a while that I don't have a huge construction project on. Um, I just can't afford to do it the way things have gone. So, um, I'll have to, uh, I'll have to just come up with just more exciting ways to to plant what I have, the areas that I have. And do you find because this is something I'm going into this year as we wrap up here. I've always tried in the past, especially now that making the gardens public is you, you have for a long time now and me just recently, I'm yeah. I'm trying to transition a little bit from collector garden to garden do, do, in your mind. Do you ever balance those two things, you know, or do you always lean collector or do you have those moments where you go? Um, mm. No, I like, I mean, I'm doing both. I'm doing both and I'm, I probably do less of the kind of just heading out with a wheelbarrow in the evening and planting plants wherever I feel like putting them. There is more planning going into creating that colour tapestry and, uh, but always, always the collecting plants as well by in the middle of that. But I'm definitely thinking more about the overall plant design well, than I did. And and I think that is a balance that, that for most people, it's hard to understand that comment. I think that, you know, for me, starting off with like Isra Palmatum is like a major thing for me. I have 145 cultivars of it, right? Wow. So it's like, that's, that's here. <laughs> but ironically, Jimmy, to, to, I, I'm going to double down on what Jimmy said. For me, what's so fascinating is when the when the dahlias are in bloom, no one pays attention to anything else. <laughs> you know, they're oh, yeah. Yeah. they're walking by this very rare, you know, cultivar of fill in the blank or rare species of whatever. Yeah. And they're like, meh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know, I know exactly. Yeah. And there's there's moments where I have a AB Cellophonica <laughs> that grows here. Uh, the cultivar is Myers dwarf. And for most people, uh, a fir tree, a true fir growing in the southern U.S. is like, what? What? How? Like, how is that even working? But <laughs> I'm very fortunate to have a pretty specific microclimate where I get away, especially with a lot of those Mediterranean firs. And yeah. yet, <laughs> all people care about is over there is <laughs> Dahlia Strawberry Ice. Like, that's it. The whole show <laughs> It's just strawberry ice. Does that do you ever have those moments where you're just a little bit how do you deal with them? I I smile and appreciate the fact that they love strawberry ice, but I do also have the moment, Jimmy, where I'm like, do you know what you're looking at? Do you know do you know what's right next to you? Well, I watch people walking in and they they walk right past all my beautiful pseudopanics and they go straight for the Californian poppies or the Sorrente or and uh I'm like, do you know what you walked by? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and no, I just—I mean, well, I, I think this year I missed. I did miss. We we lost all our garden tours, you see. So I missed those kind of specialist tours that would zoom in on some group of plants. And I know that'll all happen again as well. But um, was that t- was exactly. that tough for you? Was that tough? I mean, I know for me, I had a moment this year in the summer. Well, I'm very isolated here, right? We didn't have, I don't have anybody else working with me. And I haven't had some of those visits that I think all plants people sometimes look forward to by other plants yeah. people. Did you miss that at all emotionally, psychologically this year? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
Um, I mean, amazing people visited the garden this summer. I mean, and it was it was really good for them and good for me. But I really missed those plant nerds. Um, yeah, I did. I missed the the nerding, going looking at different groups of plants. And um, that's why it's good to talk to you tonight. Actually, I feel. Jesus, I feel I feel like I want to go out gardening now. I'm so excited. No, that's <laughs> it. Well, and and by the way, people, I've said this before in one of the reboot podcasts that we did, and just to share this with you, Jimmy, that mm-hmm. when I started, when we came, we had moved to Connecticut for two years, but kept this home and property. That when we came back, I wanted to do something that would make money for what I did here, essentially, right? Because at yeah. some point, bills have to get paid. <laughs> so, yeah. so I was like, okay, we'll do cut flowers. One of the things that I didn't get with cut flowers is exactly what you're talking about and what we're having right now. It, it wasn't the same community of people. Yeah. It, it was yeah. not the person who's going to notice the pseudopanics. It wasn't the person who's going to notice the AV Salafonica growing in Tennessee, right? Yeah. It, yeah, it was yeah. not those people. Yeah. And there were moments for me where it was a little tough because <laughs> I'm just yeah. going, I'm used to plants, people. Like we, like we go from 200 yards away. We're like, is that a, <laughs> and then you fill in the blank of the name. And then the person goes, it is a, and then we walk over to it. Right. Like <laughs> I'm used to those moments and yeah. I love the dahlias. I love roses. I have a passion for both as well, but at some point there was a monotony that grew. Yeah. If yeah. I, if I never see another, Dahlia, <laughs> um, what, what's a good one that I was totally sick of? Um, Spartacus. Uh, it'll be too oh, soon. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I know. I know. I know exactly. So, um, if people want, what what's the the best thing for you for people to do now? If they're, are you reopen for visits now as we speak in 2020 and towards the latter part of the summer yet? Yeah, we we open till the end of September, and then we open back up next year from April to um, April to the end of September. Um, but I suppose if they're if you're not able to get here, it's 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 follow on the Instagram page. It's Jimmy Blake underscore Huntingbrook Gardens, I think, or or on Facebook Huntingbrook Gardens. Yeah. Um, where do the shirts come from, Jimmy? Last question. Most important oh, question. Where do the shirts come from? For those of you that don't know and you're not following. First off, if you're not following Jimmy, you're just not a person I can be friends with. First <laughs> off, that's number one. Number two, the shirts come, where come do these shirts come from? They come from all over the place. I mean, they literally, I've, I've, tra- I've traveled a lot. so And they're not necessarily, a lot of my shirts are not expensive shirts. Some of them are from um, vintage shops. Some of them are from charity shops. Some of them from... Um, online. Uh, I I could get them anywhere. I I particularly like markets and um. Uh, and yeah, I, there is there is one place that I do get shirts, but I'm not telling you. <laughs> it's top secret. Ties of these old abandoned rails Wondering about the stories they could tell 
I think of all the weight I carry on my own And I try to empathize with all they bear There's something about the sun that brings me back to life It's just like staring in your eyes And I can't tell you what it is I'm doing here all I know is nothing's felt so right So let me stay Feeling this way I never want to leave this state of Everybody's putting down this brand new hymn But they're just whispers way up here They got no rhyme for the reason why it's wrong But there's still this burning in my ears So Questions that